I have this thing sometimes, it hasn't been recent, um, just based on my life, but in my commute to work, I work in Grand Rapids, and in driving, I often think about my sons. I have two sons, Hunter's 12, almost 13. Wow, that's crazy. Um, and then I have a nine-year-old, Brock. They're so unique, um, and they so much remind me of um, the diversity that God gives families, and it's a beautiful thing. But I get to this point, and I'm praying for them, and I'm thinking about their accomplishments. And then I also think of, there's just nothing I want more that they would be in relationship with Jesus Christ and truly understand that, and not just have my, my faith and Heather's faith, but to really be in relationship with Jesus. So in my mind, I start making all these extravagant promises. God, I'll do this. I'll do this one thing if you would just promise to make them your own. And then I realize in that prayer by the Spirit of God, there's nothing I can do because I'll break the promise. If I make a promise to God, God, I'll do this. And then, and then if I just do this, you can, you, can, you can do this, God. And I realize I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna fail. And I weep in the car and people driving by are like, what is going on in that guy's life? And then I recognize the truth of God's word that he's shown us and is so gracious to reveal to us that he makes the good and right choice. And then I recognize, and just like we're singing, God is worthy, and I can do nothing but praise him because he has my children, and his will is good and perfect and pleasing. So whether you are a basket case like the man standing in front of you, attempting to preach the word of God faithfully, or that you're in a, a better, maybe more stable spot in your emotions right now. Remember that he alone is worthy. He's the one. He's the reason that we're here. He's the reason that we're singing. We want to know more about him as we look at his word. Last week, Jasper uh, preached from the end of Acts 11. Um, kind of a picture of a church. And there were, you can see them up on the screen, a focused church, really, a church that's focused on the summit. Jasper has this, uh, is it a metaphor or an analogy? I don't know what it is, but it's cool. It's this idea that we're all in life walking on a journey, on a path. And when we keep our eyes on the summit, that's why we're called Summit Church. When you keep your eyes on things above, that's when you're focused on the right thing. But then there's all these things that happen in the world, right? Uh, The forest kind of collapses around us. And oftentimes, as we can all attest, The forest collapsing around us, that's of our own making. Like we don't think about the right things. We're not focused on the right things because we're selfish. There's this flesh that drags us down and everything becomes about me, right? We've all experienced that. But then there's also these things, as we're going to look at today, uh, external forces that are impacting our lives. It's not just all in here and here. There are things around us in the world, the world that we see and a world that we do not, that are coming after us. But amidst that, there's a focused church, thinking about a focused church, displays the grace of God, remains faithful to God and his purpose. It's about sticking with the mission that God has given us, right? That's founded on it, teaches and seeks to be taught. So it's not just the guy teaching here, but it's the whole body wants to know the word of God, to be taught it, which implies in that idea is this inherent thing. We don't know everything. We need to be taught. We need people to rebuke us and correct us and challenge us and then exhort us and say, God is with us. We can do this. And then that that church that's focused on the right thing is determined to be used by God 
in accordance with the gifts that he's given us. This is about whole participation. The word of God makes it very clear that everyone has a gift by God's spirit and how he's composed us that is to be used for the, the benefit, the profit of everyone in the church altogether. And that's the picture of that church in Antioch at the end of chapter 11 of Acts. It's important to remember when we look at the book of Acts, it's less about systems and more a, a picture of these outcomes of what happens when we are spirit-filled and obedient to the word of God. So sometimes we'll look at Acts and we'll be like, oh, I've got to be that church. And there's nothing wrong with that, really. But really, we're focusing on outcomes then that we can obtain by obeying Jesus, focusing on the word of God, and doing the things that brought about those outcomes that we see in Acts. Because while great things were happening, happening in the church in Antioch, Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 12, things were challenging. That's what we're going to look at today. So Acts chapter 12. When we look at a whole chapter, when we preach a whole chapter, it's really important for you as a listener, someone being taught, for you to have the word of God in front of you so that you can look at the whole thing. So it's fine if you're looking down. I'll trust that you're not asleep quite yet. Maybe that's for later in the sermon. But really, because you're looking at the word of God and you're going through it. Because you should earnestly seek out whether or not what I'm saying and preaching here is true according to the word of God. And you have access to that. And by the spirit, he illuminates the word of God for you that you might know. So do those things as I preach this morning. But Acts chapter 12. And the first thing we'll see, looking at verses 1 to 4, is that a focused church is persecuted. Look at verse 1. About that time. So this is when things are going on that are awesome in Antioch. Herod the king, uh, when you see Herod, generally in scripture, safe to think scumbag um, would be how I would say it. Herod the scumbag king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, verse 4. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers. So that's 16 Soldiers around this one guy. You might say that's overkill. Four squads of soldiers to guard him. Intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. The assumption there is that he's then going to have him judged basically and then executed, killed. A focused church is persecuted. We see that in Acts chapter 12 here. And let's look at just some ideas From verses 1 to 4. And two things that jumped out to me is that the authorities, in this case the government, Herod the scumbag king, attacked identifiable believers. Look at that uh, right there in in verse 1. He laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So he attacked identifiable believers and he also imprisoned and killed church leaders. These are things that we can notice about persecution. And this is confirmed in the book of Acts, but then we've seen it all throughout the history of the church that these things happen. Identifiable believers are are imprisoned or attacked by the authorities, and then they're killed. The leaders of the church are killed and imprisoned. Now, a question as you look at verses 1 to 4, how did Herod know, as it's translated in the ESV, who belonged to the church? So it says that he he went after them. He laid violent hands on them. How did he know who was part of the church, who belonged to the church? Think about that. How would Herod know that? 
I think the important thing to remember is that a life that's lived overtly as part of the church will make you a target for persecution. A life lived overtly as part of the church will make you a target for persecution. If you look like the world, you'll blend in with the world and you're not going to be persecuted. But if you look different than the world and are aligned with the church, that is the body of Christ, that makes you a target for persecution. This is confirmed elsewhere throughout scripture. 2 Peter 3.12, many of us know this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In all the gospels, this idea is emphasized by the Lord. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus says, you will be hated for my namesake. John 15, 20, which we're actually going to be studying just in a few weeks, I think. Remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So when you live your life for Jesus Christ, you will be a target for persecution. That is not just a statement of truth. That is a promise from Jesus himself. Very interesting. Now here's a question, again, we, we don't exactly know an answer, but I, I wanted to stimulate our brains to think about something. Why didn't Herod just kill Peter too? Right? So he killed James, basically he assassinated James, the brother of John, essentially, with the sword. Why didn't he just do that to Peter, right? He could have done it. He has the resources to do it. He could have just, instead of grabbing Peter and putting him in jail, why, why did he... Why did he do it this way that we see. I think there's, there's two things that we can think about as we look at what verse would that be. Um, yeah, verse three, at the start of verse three, and when he saw that this pleased the Jews. So there's this aspect that some of persecution is just the way that sinful, broken, worldly people think. And Herod, in this case, saw that the action was a chance to earn favor. It was complete self-interest. So he didn't really hate Peter as much as he saw, hey, when I killed this guy over here who I didn't like, uh, everybody uh, who was enemies of that like, seemed to appreciate that. That gained me favor. I'm going to try to do something with this guy. So there was self-interest that drove Herod to attack Peter and put him in jail. I think one warning for us in this, when you think about politicians and who you align your life with, Don't trust human beings not to betray you. Because that is going to happen. Because people without Christ are completely focused on themselves. And they'll turn on you in a second. But there's also an aspect that I think is more important than just the fact that people are broken and only concerned about themselves. And that is you look at the deeper level of things and the bigger picture of Scripture and then what Herod did It's clear that he was blinded, he was deceived, and he had an unprotected heart, and that allowed him to be manipulated and used by the devil and spiritual forces of evil. Write this verse down, it's not going to be on the screen or anything, some of you know it quite well. Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So when we are persecuted as the church, there's a tendency to make it very earthly, 
Because it's visceral. These things are real and they're happening to us. They're happening to our brothers and sisters. And yes, it's evident in Ukraine, but it's actually happening all the time, all over the world. But Ephesians 6 reminds us, it's not just these human beings attacking and that we can't fight spiritual battles with earthly tactics. So then it follows that, well, what does the church do then? Do you look at the the church in Acts 12? We're going to look at verse 5 now. A focused church responds with fervent corporate prayer. Look at verse 5. So Peter is kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Look at verse 5, end of it there. It's a lot about prayer in, I think it's 11 words, depending on your translation. First thing, earnest prayer, but earnest prayer. Prayer should be fervent. The word earnest there, it means with a deep conviction and certainty, confidence, prayer that's filled with faith. That's earnest prayer. The next idea is very interesting. Earnest prayer, what does it say next? Earnest prayer for him. Earnest prayer for him. Earnest prayer is intercessory. It has an opinion. When you go to God, it is right The posture of your heart should be, God, your will be done. But you go to God and you say, God, please do this. God, I have an opinion about this. I want you to save my brother in this spot. Just like we prayed for our friends in Ukraine. We don't come and say, whatever, God. There's never a position of whatever. It's always, God, please do this. And and whatever you do, we submit to you in that. But God, please do this for our brother. So earnest prayer was made for Peter, for him. And it was made to God. Earnest prayer is always properly focused and directed to God alone. And then look at that last part, by the church, the end of verse five there, by the church. Jump ahead, look at verse 12. Where many were gathered together and were praying. These two things go together. So earnest, fervent prayer should be done together, corporately as a church. Yes! We can look at the Gospels and say we should have what you might call a prayer closet. Or we go somewhere and pray alone in private. But there is a need to be together and pray and call out to God. And that's the pattern that we see of the church in Acts 12. Now as we think about prayer, it's important to remember that there are a thousand different ways. More than a thousand different ways probably. We can make a long list of different ways that the church in Acts could have responded to persecution, right? But Acts 12 only talks about one way that they responded. They gathered together to pray. I want you to be encouraged in this. If someone breaks into your house, for example, defense is fine. If someone comes to your home and breaks into your house and tries to hurt your family, you can try to stop them. Neutralize the threat. De-escalate a situation. Stop the bleeding. By the conviction and spirit of God leading you, run, fight, or hide as God's spirit leads you to do that. But that's, that's defense. That's a reaction to something. That's not vengeance in your heart. You have to know this. Your offensive weapons as a follower of Christ and as a church together are to trust the word of God and to pray. The word of God and prayer, that's where the power is. We need to understand that as a church. Our power is not in armies or forces 
laws, documents written by men. None of those things have the power that the word of God does and prayer does. That's where we need to focus as a church. It's not being wimpy to pray and to make that your thing. It's not not doing wrong things to speak the word of God, to devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. Those are good things and that's where the power is. Use your voice to speak the word of God. Come together to pray. We can do it as a whole body. We can do it as small groups, like formal small groups, the one that we're like on a roster with, but then just people that we're together in Christ with. Come together and pray. I caution you, don't get sucked into the ways of the world of accomplishing things when persecution comes. Violence, scheming, mocking or trying to humiliate opponents. Self-focus, self-exaltation, propaganda, all prideful things. When you face persecution, think of the word of God and the truth of the word of God and then come together with other believers and pray like you've never prayed before together. And Jesus teaches us by his word how we're supposed to pray. We could have a, a week of sermons just on that. But think of these things that the Bible says. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. How do you do that apart from the spirit of God changing your heart? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. The Lord said in all the gospels, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The apostle Paul wrote, Jasper references, pray for all people, including kings and people in authority who oppress you. That they would come to know who Jesus is so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. My exhortation to this church this morning is to join together in prayer and to pray more. By saying more, I mean that's more than we do right now. I can't place the exact year. I think it was 2015. It may have been 2014 or 2016. I can't remember I guess I could go back through like old photos and piece things together. But there was a conference that I was at at some point in that, that time. And there were all these church leaders together. Right? So a bunch of guys and asking all these good questions about the church. What do we do when this happens? What do we do when this happens? What do we do when this happens? And the, when this happens, we're kind of like, uh, I don't know, basically, you could put a business in in place of the church. How do I grow my church? How do we do this? What should children's ministry look like? Um, how do we accomplish this? What do we do when everyone comes in late because they want to talk in the back instead of worshiping together? All those kind of things. People bring up all these questions that are valid. And then a pastor from Chennai, India gets up and there's all these other guys talking and ah, about like, hey, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And he's like, I, I won't try to repeat it exactly like he did, but he said, what do we do when armed men come into our church and demand that we stop preaching the gospel? And every single egg out there just shut up and looked so ashamed that they were so focused on all the ah, when in, in reality there are worse situations that we, because of our beliefs and what we profess, run into. I want to think about the things that you ask of, maybe demand of Summit Church. could be long lists of things, facilities, certain types and volumes of music, kids' ministry to be a certain way or at a certain cadence. 
decorations to be a certain way. Maybe you want it to be more feminine or more masculine. Like, think of this list of things. Maybe you want more in-depth sermons. Maybe you want shorter sermons. Maybe you want better snacks. There's long list of secondary things. Long, long list of secondary things. But here's, here's the warning and with that an exhortation. If we as a body of believers together can't make those things distant seconds, like miles away second place, to the teaching of the word of God and to prayer together, when, when we face persecution, we, we might splinter, we might divide and not be able to stay together. We have to stay focused on the word of God and what the word of God says, which is to pray without ceasing. Here's this awesome thing though, right? That's pretty harsh for a guy to get up and say that. Basically, I'm challenging the secondary things that you think about church in favor of the primary things. That's what I'm doing right now. But look what happens. Look at the text, what happens when the church comes together and prays. And it's, it's awesome. Verse six, right? Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains. So we're thinking double human power here. Two soldiers, two chains. And sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and, was, uh, and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first guard and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, that is, to kill me. When you read something like this, you must remember that God does what he wants, when and where he wants to do it, and he does it how he wants to do it in order to accomplish his purposes. So let's look at the miracle because it's cool to look at miracles. They're all over scripture. Let's look at this one. What is this miracle that Peter got to experience and then the church heard about? What does it teach us about miracles? First of all, there's this boundary between physical and spiritual that gets crossed. An angel appears from heaven and the prison cell fills with light and then the angel smacks Peter on the side. So there's this thing that the spiritual and the physical kind of come together. Lines that we expect to be in place are sort of crossed in this. And then two chains that are somehow on Peter, like maybe he's like handcuffed like this, or somehow around him, double chained, they just fall off, which is pretty awesome. And in miracles, the physical rules that we expect are bent or broken. Next, the angel has him get dressed, because I imagine Peter's like, just standing there. He doesn't really get what's going on. They walk by two guards. They're completely oblivious. How does that happen when the, the cell, the prison cell is filled with light? How can the guards just be standing there with whatever they do with their spears, I would imagine, or swords that they had? 
So the two guards next to him are oblivious. Then they pass by another set of guards. And then another set of guards are passed by. And there's this idea when we look at in scripture, we see this common theme that human perception is blocked or changed. And in some cases, a positive sense, maybe it's enhanced. There's cases where that happens in scripture. And then they get to this final gate. And then the gate just opens. Again, the physical rules of the world are bent or broken. Now that's all from our perspective. I don't know what God thinks other than what he's revealed, but I have to imagine in heaven, God wasn't like impressed with what he was doing. Like the gates open, he's like, well, I wanted that. That's how Peter got out with the angel. The gates opened. But to us, those are miraculous things. And it's pretty awesome. I want to have a moment of reflection to help us deal with something that maybe we're not thinking right now. And I would say it like this. When, when the apostle John, so James' brother, heard about what happened with Peter, how do you think he felt? Right? So basically, uh, think of it this way. How would you feel hearing basically about a brother and partner in ministry being targeted and assassinated, and like maybe a week later, God miraculously rescues someone else. How would you feel about that? I think in my heart I would be like, why him, but not him, God? I love my brother. I want to be with my brother. We joked around. Lots of fishing jokes all the time. And those are all gone now. If you want to flip back to Acts 5, you can. I'm going to look at verse 40. In Acts 12, it's not the first time the church has been persecuted. Acts 5.40, I know some of you are catching up in your Bibles, but I'm going to start reading. And when they had called in the apostles, so this is, um, basically they'd already been in jail because they were preaching the gospel. So this is all the apostles. There's 11 plus replacement guy who I can never remember his name. Um, But they called them in, they beat them, and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Look at end of verse 41 then. Then they left the presence of the council, right, the authorities. And what did they do? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And then what did they do? Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us what John was thinking about his brother being killed If you have a brother that's been killed or one who's died, you recognize that he was greatly hurt by that. But also there was a chance for John to look at it and say, well, God rescued us before and he didn't this time, so God must have a greater plan in this. God always has a greater plan with what happens. So thinking about Acts 5 and the rescue there and then Acts 12, what we're looking at today, I I want to ask you and think about this. What do you think about God's miraculous power? What do you think about God's miraculous power? Here's here's the deal, as Pastor Todd would say. Here's the deal. Some of us are, and it's probably a smaller group of us, but some of us are so focused on like the, the mystery or intrigue or coolness of miraculous things 
that, that we allow ourselves to miss that God is working right in front of our face because we only want him to do awesome, cool-looking things. We're only looking for signs and wonders from God. We only want to see the Red Sea parted or the storms of our lives stopped. Sometimes we miss praising God that when our child can't breathe, we can nebulize albuterol and all of a sudden our child can breathe again. You know what we should say because of how God has built medicine, for example? Praise God. That's amazing. Because there's nothing worse. And I'm thinking about Brock, who's probably watching on TV right now. It's so amazing that he's like, I can't breathe, Dad. And we can nebulize this stuff and it works and it opens up his lungs and he can breathe and he's still alive. When you have kids in that situation, you know that awful feeling and then the relief and praise to God by the way he's created things. So some of us are too focused on the miraculous, but I would say in our culture, that's not the case. I would say more of us today are are like Thomas after the resurrection. We're so focused on being able to explain and understand and then quantify everything that we completely disregard God's unlimited infinite power. So we end up living as if God is somehow subject to some set of rules that's outside of himself. Whatever we might profess, right, in our doctrinal statements or things like that, the way that we often act and live our lives is that God is subject to his creation. And that's not right. God is sovereign. God alone is creator. He's the only one And he's outside of his creation. So God alone has the power, the wisdom, and authority to do anything he wants with and within his creation. He can do it however he wants to. And that's what miracles are. God being God. You should be encouraged by this passage because when we're persecuted, we can remember who God is. We know who God is. We know his character and his promises. He's all-powerful, completely in control at all times. Nothing is more powerful than God. He's subject to nothing. He alone decides, and no one but he decides. He has no boundaries, no limits, no beginning and no end. I can't even wrap my mind around that. The no end part I can get because I kind of exist and I'm like, oh, if I just kept existing. But the no beginning part, what in the world? How? We have limits. We have impossibilities and brokenness. We have things that we cannot do. I can't even not eat donuts on a weekly basis. But God is different than that. There's nothing that God can't do. He always gets his way. And time shows this, and history has shown this, that that, that timing and the, way, the thing he does, his will, is always good, it's always perfect, and it's always pleasing. So he's sovereign, and he's good. Amazing combination. And this is, in part, why we pray. Because we know that we are not able, but that God is able. That's why we pray. And the church believed that. That's why they gathered together at Mark's mom's house. Look at verse 12. So Peter's walking away, right? And all of a sudden he's just in the street. I don't know why God didn't give him like a giant talking eagle to come take him right to her house. But God broke him free and then he's like, now you go walk. I don't know how far it was, but he had to walk there. 
He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So they were together and praying. So he knocks on the door and look at verse 13. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice and her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. If I'm Peter, I'm like, hey, Rhoda, like what's the deal? Look at what they said to Rhoda. They said to her, you're nuts. You're crazy. You're out of your mind. You're not thinking right. But she was so insistent, and they kept saying then, it's his angel. Because that's a logical explanation, right? Oh, it's his angel. They assumed he was dead. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Yeah. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to brothers. That's a different James. To James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And then verses 18 and 19 talk about some other things that happened, unfortunately, to those soldiers. I want to encourage you to look for God at work as you pray. Fervent prayer, we want that to be part of our church, and it is, but we want that to be more so not just as a body of believers together, individually in the lives of every believer, but all together as well. But when you pray, look for God at work. And when you're praying corporately, don't be like those believers where you just miss what God is doing because you've made a a presumption or an assumption about how God can work or the way that God would do something. Colossians 4.2 says this, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And as that passage continues, really, it's a prayer that the gospel would be continued to be proclaimed. Here's this awesome thing. When you're looking, when you're being watchful in your prayer with thanksgiving, you recognize that a church prevails in Christ. A focused church prevails in Christ. Verses 20 to 23. So Herod, after the the situation, he's mad. So he goes on vacation uh, down to the sea. He was angry at the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, I'm glad I'm Bjorn and not Blastus, worst name ever, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, brown-nosing, rear-end kissing people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Verse 23, immediately, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Sometimes when we're in the midst of persecution, big and small, we miss the fact that God's judgment is not just something that's waiting, although it is. God is timely and perfect in his judgment. And the church who's focused on what God is doing often witnesses timely punishment of God against his enemies. I want you to consider this. So think of what you know of history. If you're just a little kid right now, maybe you don't know much of history. If you've lived longer, you've seen history and you've probably studied it more. Think of one persecutor of the church There's names that come to mind. Think of one persecutor of the church, and I'll tell you that whatever name you think of, 
in history past is dust or just jelly in a grave right now. And we're here gathered together as a body of believers. So every persecutor of the church has died and the church still remains. This is not an accident. That's from the promise of God. Look up on the screen, Matthew 16, 18. This is a central promise from Jesus that we see in scripture. The first part uh, might divide some different traditions. And I tell you that you're Peter and this, on this rock I will build my church. We have to remember that the profession that Peter made before that, that you are the Christ, the son of God. It was declared by Jesus to be from God's inspiration. Peter didn't figure that out. God told and let Peter know that. And then the Lord says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When you look up on the screen there, I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What do you, what do you think of when you hear the word hell? We know as kids, that's a, a naughty word. We shouldn't say hell. We think of this idea of demonic forces. Think of all these, these spiritual things. But the word there is Hades that Jesus said. And the emphasis is on death. And when we understand that Jesus was talking about death, there's something very important that we understand that's a promise that Jesus is making. And that is, not even death shall prevail against my building of the church. So think about that for a second. What is, what is the, the one, or there's probably two things that human beings are the most afraid of. One is pain and death. Third one's probably taxes and that fits in there somehow. But there's this certainty about fear of pain. I don't want to hurt. And then the, the, this weirdness about death and I know it's coming and I don't want to think about it. And then I watch people die and it hurts because I was connected to them, had relationships with them and it's awful. And death is just so awful. And then Jesus is saying, not even that, the worst thing that you could ever think of will prevail against what I'm doing in my church. It's like amazing. And that's why when you look at the church, the church has persisted. And yeah, it's been up and down and things have been great in some cases and bad in others. But in the way that the Lord looks at it, maybe some of those things that we felt were great were actually God saying, this, this is not so great. And maybe the things that we said were bad, God had said, I am declared glorious in this. But not even the gates of hell, not even the Hades, not even death will prevail against the church. And in the end, the ultimate persecutor will be put away and then punished forever. So you have an enemy that's not just uh, someone you'd put a political sign in your yard about. You have an enemy that is the devil who deceives and accuses. And scripture promises that he'll be put away forever. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Human persecutors, they're all dead and the church has remained. And in the end, Jesus defeats the devil and he's put away forever and punished and judged. I was reading Psalm 37 this week. Pretty awesome. I wonder if I would have liked David like hanging out with him, would I have been like, oh, this guy's awesome? Or like, this guy, I don't like this guy. I don't know yet. So think about that as you read the Psalms. 
I hope I would like him because he's a type of Christ, right? So there's something to say there. Psalm 37, 35, and 36. Write this down. Psalm 37, just read the whole thing. It's not like Psalm 119. You could do it in one sitting. Psalm 37, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. So wicked, ruthless man spreading himself green. And in other words, he's profiting. He seems to be blessed. But he passed away and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. In other words, he's dead. But that's not what happens to the church. Even though some parts of the body are killed for the sake of Christ, the whole body remains because of the promise of Jesus. And there's this awesome thing then that amidst persecution, a focused church sees spiritual growth. Look at verses 24 and 25. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Let's look at verse 25 first, really quickly. Just looking at verse 25. So if we remember from 11, Barnabas and Saul then basically went with gifts, uh, financial um, support for the church. And they, they brought with them John, Mark. Just wanted to make one note about, I think something we can pull out in regards to discipleship. A significant part of discipleship, it's not like a book, it's not like a program Uh, You don't have to necessarily always have a curriculum for discipleship. But there's this awesome power and value of uh, OTJ, on-the-job training. Think about John Mark, about Mark, who's a younger guy. A lot we can learn as we look through the book of Acts and through the epistles of Paul. But he, he got to be with Barnabas, the son of encouragement, like this super encouraging guy. And then Paul, who got to go to the third heaven and learn this awesome, amazing stuff about who God is. There's this value in being around the right people. Yes, it's good to read books, and it's important to study, some of us more than others, perhaps, in regards to formal training. But there's nothing that beats being around and doing service and ministry together. That's how John Mark was able to grow. But then verse 24 is where we really want to close out today. Look at what it says. But the word of God increased and multiplied. This is an interesting way that the book of Acts talks about uh, things that roll out of persecution. So there's growing. It's like, think about a tree growing, right? It's this thing and it just gets bigger. Maturation, spiritual growth. And multiplying. So I could... It could be thought about like increasing, but it's really being filled up to full measure. But if you look at verse 24, what, what does the Bible say? And I want you to answer this in your head. What does the Bible say in verse 24, grew and multiplied? Look at it. What does it say? The word of God grew and multiplied. Now we know from other places in the book of Acts and elsewhere that when there's persecution, usually the body of Christ, like the the people we're looking at grows. People come to know who Jesus is through persecution. And the church also multiplies and goes out. That's actually how the church in uh, Antioch got started because the church in Jerusalem was persecuted and they scattered. And then that's how that church began. But the Bible says that the word of God grew and multiplied. 
What does that mean? I was thinking about it this week and even this morning in the form of a question that I penciled into my notes here. And I would say it like this. What do you want expanded, magnified, and exalted? What do we as Summit Church want expanded, magnified, and exalted? The word of God. Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Here's the awesome thing. That happens. Isaiah 55, amazing. There's, all of scripture is amazing, I get it, but there's some parts when you read it and you're like, God, you are so good. And you show me through this just something, how could I even know this? Isaiah 55, you got into the kind of the middle of it. Of it. And God says this through the prophet Isaiah, so shall my word be, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. This is God speaking of himself. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, when God's word goes out, God always gets what he wants from it. God's purposes, his mission, his plans always succeed for the things which he sends it. Always. There's no exception to that, ever. And it's so encouraging to us because then when we keep focusing on the right things, that is the word of God and prayer and doing what Jesus says, we can entrust the growth to God. 1 Corinthians 3. I guess I've given you like eight things that you're supposed to read throughout the week. I hope you've been writing them down. Um, 1 Corinthians 3. There's kind of a dispute in the church about like, who are we following? Who's the best leader? And Paul writes to them, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He then goes on to say, hey, the, the planter and the waterer, they're, they're one, they're together in this, and they both get rewarded according to what they've done, according to their service. So there's planters, there's waterers, there's different ways that God gifts his body. But as long as you stay focused on what God has called you to do, his purposes and his mission, he's the one that brings the growth. He's the one who brings the growth. And that growth shows up in different ways. Sometimes we see that that growth in terms of size. That is, like think about Pentecost. All these people come into relationship with Jesus Christ. It's amazing because of the word of God. But then you see other situations where someone, uh, a child is dead in their sins and trespasses. And because of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts, they suddenly understand the truth of the gospel and they grow. They're saved and they grow up. And those people end up in many cases to be doing all kinds of awesome things for the kingdom of God, teaching Sunday school classes and going out as missionaries and serving at work so that when they serve at work, people see that there's something different about those who follow Jesus Christ And whole offices in some cases are being saved by the fact that one person came into relationship with Jesus Christ. But when we focus on the right things, when we pray together and stick with the truth of God's word, God does the growing and we don't have to sweat about it. Even when the circumstances feel challenging. As you think about what God is doing in your life in places like Ukraine, with nations like Russia and other places, you can never forget that God always gets his way 
and the awesome grace that he has to include us in his mission. So when you're stressed, and you have thoughts about world rulers that maybe keep you up at night, or you're stressed about things that are more local and things that are the way that you would not have them be, God is in control over all those things. Don't focus on all the negative because there's this one positive to focus on, and that's that God is sovereign. And it may not be easy, but in the end, we will know with certainty because of what God has promised that it's worth it. Join me as I pray. God, you are indeed good. You're indeed gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Help us to be people, as you've commanded, who do not fear. Not by rationalizing or understanding everything, but because of our great confidence, our faith in you. Where things are hard, help us to lift one another up. Where we are lonely, help us to know that in every circumstance we are never alone because you are with us and you will not leave us nor forsake us. Where we grieve with our brothers and sisters, help that grief to strive us to action and fervency in the declaration of the gospel and sticking to your truth and care for one another. In all things, Help us to remember that you are able, God. It's not about us. It's about how you've changed us and what you've called us to do and that you're great. Help us to glorify you by making disciples who are all about the exaltation of Jesus Christ, your son. Help us to do this. Thank you for your promise that it will happen. Amen.